people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. So hello, welcome to 12 Rules for What, uh, a deep state podcast about the far right. We're talking, of course, about what happened at... Oh, look at his Cap- little face. He Sorry. loves it. He loves it. <laughs> yes, listeners. Uh, it's time. Trump has been defeated. We can come out finally as Biden-Harris 2020 supporters. My name is Sam, as ever, and I'm joined by... Alex. And we, of course, are talking about what happened in the United States a couple of days ago. I was actually really ill on the day this is happening. So I am, um, yeah, so my my knowledge of, my, my recollection of events is a bit hazy. So what we're going to do, first of all, is go through the timeline of things that happened, and then we'll get on to talking about the context, the wider history, the, um, and we'll hopefully have some interesting uh, discussion of exactly how that happens and, and why and what it means for the far right and what it means for anti-fascists. So First thing to note is that Trump loses the election on November the 3rd. So this is happening almost two months, actually more than two months later. The votes were being certified. So the US has this system where they vote for an electoral college and the electoral college, the electors vote for the candidates and then the Senate certifies the candidates or something like that. I'm not quite sure exactly what the process is, but point on that chain was happening on the 6th of January. It's important Uh, to say that this is like a formality uh, the certification Normally, of the electoral votes is, is is a formality. I mean, there is no like legal, there's no like political mechanism for anything to change now that the states have certified their own votes. Yes, there have been a couple of faithless electors. That's what they're called in the past. Okay, so yeah, the history of this stuff is that the, the elector, electors are almost overwhelmingly faithful. Perhaps we can talk about this later, but obviously the this undermining of the of the electoral college process is not like a new ph- phenomenon even in recent history like not only was trump going on about a rigged election in the 2016 election you know before he won you know this is something that clintonite liberals engaged in as well they were trying to encourage uh, electors to be faithless um uh they were obviously the uh, kind of the russia um fake scandal um was like used as liberals as like a kind of emotional crutch to um, kind of deal with the, the, the devastating loss of um, of the 2016 election. So these kind of undermining what we saw on on Wednesday was, you know, um, was new in the invasion of the capital. But this kind of questioning of democratic processes has been taken up by both sides in recent years as well, which it's important to point out. So there's a, there's, a, there's a rally called Stop the Steal, which is organized for the January the 6th, um, promoted by Trump uh, as a kind of a big rally on Twitter. Um, he also of course, speaks at the rally along with Rudy Giuliani and several members of Congress. Um, you heard a clip from that at the very beginning. Then he says, um, I think it's Giuliani who describes the, um, uh, the result as needing to be settled by combat. Uh, a trial by combat needs to take place. Um, the crowd then marches to the Capitol building, which is the place where uh, the Congress meets. Um, and there's essentially, uh, they're let in by the police. Um, there are some videos that have been floating around in which police are actually coming towards the marchers and beckoning them to come through the gates and um, opening up those kind of tra- um, uh, fence things that they have uh, in order to kind of do crowd control. Um, there are some more intense scuffles, I think, around the side. There are some police who are trying to prevent them from entering the Capitol building. But by and large, it seems, obviously, 
this is nothing compared to say the uh, policing of Black Lives Matter protests over the last year, and it's nothing compared to how most political protests in the US are policed. There's a genuine I mean, see, panic inside the Capitol building. Well, there's also a need to say that, you know, the Capitol Police, like, this isn't some, like, rinky-dink, like, park warden outfit or something. They have, like, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in funding. They have around 2,300, um, you know, personnel at their disposal. Um, that's, like, bigger than a lot of cities in the USA. It's, you know, it, they've got a very substantial force, and you can really see that in the, like, discrepancy between how the Black Lives Matter in this Lives Matter protests in the summer were policed and how these were policed. And, you know, the people can remember the, you know, the ranks of like SWAT teams, full, you know, riot gear lining up against Lincoln Memorial, things like this. And then look at what happened on Wednesday. They, no matter what these videos are of police letting people through or whatever, um, you know, just look at the discrepancy. Like, they, uh, there was warnings about this happening well, well in um, before, you know, Wednesday, uh, moment before January the sixth, um, and they clearly were deliberately, you know, this was not like a, oh look, we accidentally forgot there's a huge mob coming. Like, you know, it's it's quite it's quite obvious in many ways. Yeah, for sure, and I think the um, and yeah, there are other kind of parts of. Uh, there are other kind of machinations that went on in the background as well. The Pentagon several times offered to use the National Guard to police this um, demo, but were rebuffed by the um, Capitol Police. Um, this should be, we should really be really clear. Here I think it actually is, and of... that's wrong. That's... Are you sure? I think what happened was the mayor made a request and then the Pentagon denied it. No, like that happens on the day. That, but three days beforehand, the, the, the Pentagon oh. offered to send the National Guard. Okay, that's um, we should be really clear here that the position of 12 rules for what, and I think the position of leftists in general, should not be that demonstrations should be more heavily policed. That's obviously not the position. We don't believe that. And we also don't believe, I think, as a matter of um, just kind of tactics, that there is something wrong with occupying the Capitol building or, you know, in the UK, the Houses of Parliament or something like that. There are, these institutions are not there to be... Um, but by people on the left kind of defended as hallowed ground and you can't go inside and blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, that's that's the democracy. The democracy doesn't exist inside the buildings. Democracy is not like in the form of the building and occupying the Capitol building is a totally legitimate tactic. It must be like, you know, it's probably a soured tactic now. It's probably not possible for the left to now go out and do that as if they, they could anyway in America. But even if they um, were to do that, they would, of course, be immediately compared now to Trump. So it's, it's a soured tactic. That doesn't mean that going into these institutions is actually a bad thing in and of itself. I think that there are much more serious concerns with people on the far right doing it than people on the far left. And let's talk about why that might be. So there was a genuine panic inside the Capitol. And I think it's it's very easy to dismiss a lot of the, that um when you see some of the photos that are being circulated. So there's a guy um, called Yellowstone Wolf, um, who I think is a self-described shaman. And he's the guy in the kind of the horns who you've seen loads of pictures of. There's a guy who's wearing kind of a fur coat and like a um, Kevlar jacket. And there are lots of people who look essentially ridiculous, right? They, they kind of, they, they look uh, absurd. And the, the Yellowstone Wolf guy is a, is a well-known feature at lots of Q uh, events, QAnon events, which we'll talk about a bit later. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of people who are saying things like, 
this is the the farce to the the, the tragedy of right? the alt right in its more kind of serious electoral form, its kind of meme magic form, its kind of neo Nazi form that it appeared at in 2017 with Christchurch and so on. That's the tragedy, and then oh, you know the kind of Marxian kind of uh, binary, right? This now what we're seeing now is the farce. But I think it's really important to note that this is an immensely heterogeneous crowd, and this is an immensely heterogeneous event for the whole of the U.S. far right. Not all of the groups, and we'll talk about the groups that probably weren't there on the day. But this is a group. This is an event that contains almost all the different factions that we have been talking about um, on the podcast and you know, uh, have written about before. And it's it's really this this heterogeneity that makes them dangerous. So on the one hand, you have people with you know the horns and the, the fur coat and blah, blah blah and looking silly, and on the other hand, you have people who. Um, are heavily armed and have uh, zip ties, these uh, kind of flex cuffs, which, which the police used to do mass arrests, but which were pretty obviously going to be used to take hostages um, from amongst the senators, from amongst the people in the capital, presumably those who would have refused to uh, ratify the election of uh, Donald Trump. And so it's not really tragedy farce, in, but it's like simultaneously both. This is both the tragedy and the farce. And the farce acts to some extent as a cover for the... Um, potentially tragic uh, and potentially like, extremely violent force underneath. Yeah, the, the zip tie guy actually embodies tragedy and farce in his person, just as a figure, because, you know, he had the zip ties, he had the full gear on in the in the, um, in the the Senate floor, but he actually attended that protest with his mum, which is like um, endearing and terrifying at the same time. And, but also like emphasizes like the, how this is, is really cross-generational. Um, this kind of Q conspiracy has pulled in people from all like kind of strata. Um, you had like indie kind of noughties, indie musicians attending. You had, you know, people coming in from all over the country. You had, um, there was a woman who died in the protests who got trampled and there was an interview with her brother-in-law and saying how deep she was, talking about how deep she was into this kind of Q uh, Democrats are paedophiles conspiracy. This is like kind of a, a, a leveling. The Q anon conspiracy uh, acts as a kind of leveling, uh, bringing people together. Yeah, completely. I think that's that's really really important. I mean, the the generational divide here. Um, there's a there's definitely a sense in which like the the alt right were at least trying to present themselves as countercultural and quite young, uh, maybe kind of like now in their like mid to kind of late late twenties now early thirties now, but reasonably countercultural, reasonably kind of savvy with the internet. And what's happened in the last four years has been this shift towards a, a substantially older demographic without really losing the younger demographic for the far right. And these these older demographics um, possibly have some sort of institutional memory of insofar as these things are institutional, has some institutional memory of previous forms of large-scale far-right movements in the US. So this kind of militia activity, or the kind of the three percenters and the Oath Keepers, which are two of the main groups, um, which are two of the main forms of um, US militia movement, um, have their, their forebears in people who come back from the Vietnam War. Right, That's obviously a long time ago, but the kind of the, the reconstruction of the KKK um, in the post-Vietnam era, then moves into um, the era of leadership, leaderless resistance in, in 1983, and then um, carries on and the militia movement essentially grows and grows and grows until the mid-90s when the Oklahoma City bombing, 1995, um, essentially terminates it, shuts it down, um, it becomes taboo again. 
And then it continues to build um, again from the time when Barack Obama becomes uh, president. And it builds throughout Trump's uh, presidency, uh, throughout Obama's presidency. And of course, now um, transforms from being an anti-state or anti-government form of movement uh, in the Obama era to being a pro-state, pro-government movement in the Trump era. And that, I think, is the really crucial change here, that we have a movement now uh, in America, which is far right and highly, highly, highly skeptical of the state, but extremely pro-government. And this is a really strange position to find oneself in. And it's a, I think it's it, it's possible to that we will find something like, or, or rather, it, it's pro, it, it's anti the state in its kind of usual functions, its um, regulatory functions, its uh, environmental protection functions, and so on. But it's pro-state in terms of its military functions. So it's border policing, it's um, surveilling of the U.S. Um, state. It's astonishing to find to see the extent to which uh, QAnon has managed to cast people who, after the Snowden revelations, were understood by the militia movement to be the main force of the new world order. How QAnon has allowed them to be recast in the mode of the ultimate saviors of American liberty. And this is this is really astonishing, um, I think. This is the main transformation that we need to be attending to. Kind of getting a bit off track um, with our timeline. Uh, so the next thing that happened, the disorder that happened was kind of surreal and serious, like we've already talked about this a little bit, but um, you know, the, the, there's a couple of things to point out. One woman was shot trying to get into an area where uh, people of Congress were. Um, and she was kind of the, I suppose, the archetypal uh, Q supporter in many ways. She's kind of fairly middle-class uh, veteran um, who flew in from California or some faraway place into Washington to protest, had in the previous days been replying to, um, you know, uh, tweets by Kamala Harris um, with this, like, just out and out conspiracizing, saying she's going to come to Washington, this kind of thing. She was like deep into uh, every all of this stuff. Um, the other thing, of course, is that there are reports, and we haven't seen, I haven't seen much more confirmation either way, of um, like timed explosive devices being found at the national committees and uh, maybe a van of, 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 of our, uh, weapons and explosives being found in found by the FBI somewhere. And we need to, obviously, we need to wait until we like, have confirmation about that properly because, um, you know, that's a, that's actually quite a very serious part of this whole thing. But like you said, the kind of surreal images of the QAnon shaman, um, you know, on the speaker's chair or on the Senate floor or wherever he was, people kind of stealing various things or going through Nancy Pelosi's emails and stuff. These are all quite arresting images, um, mainly because of how... You know, in a, in a post 9-11 America, like you think this kind of stuff wouldn't, and after, especially after the, the kind of the militarized response to the BLM protests where, you know, people could be walking down the street in New York and walking just next to a protest and be picked up in a bit, some kind of mass arrest by the NYPD. To have this kind of, you know, mass um, invasion of like very, like, you know, in liberal and conservative circles, very hallowed institutions is, uh, is particularly arresting. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I, I want to say about this kind of heterogeneity of the crowd is that is how much of the QAnon stuff seems to have become a kind of attention economy, which is also a real monetary economy in its own right. 
the Q shaman guy um, is not just there in order to be um, a representative of the Q movement. Although, of course, that is, I imagine, what he believes honestly that he is he is doing. Um, he has this big spear that says Q sent me. But he's also participating in a very real form of exchange with his supporters, right? He has been allowed to essentially live in this um, space for a few years now uh, as one of the kind of the main go-to people of the Q, uh, various Q conventions and kind of you know, being supported by the people in the Q community as uh, um, many other kind of what are called bakers are. So the idea is that Q is dropping these breadcrumbs the actual person Q themselves is dropping little breadcrumbs and these are being baked, um, quote unquote, by people in um, the movement who are able to interpret it as if you would um, interpret a religious text through and you would use um, you know, a, um, a priest or someone to, to interpret that text. And so the, these bakers, uh, people who can interpret what Q is really saying and translate it for uh, people who are not quite as um, time rich or um, conspiratorially inclined in the wider Q movement, those bakers can translate these crumbs. Those people are increasingly sustained by an economy of um, this movement. And I think what we might find, as we found amongst um, alt-right influencers who were not prepared to take the alt-light track and essentially reintegrate themselves with Trumpism, sometime around 2018, as the alt-right side of to splinter. So there was, um, and instead, what these people did was harden their positions, um, become more explicitly neo-Nazi, become more explicitly extreme, as a way of increasing the value of their products to those people who were sticking around in the alt-right, and who would therefore provide a certain kind of, com- um, a, a kind of support for them. Right? So there's, there's a real attention economy that's going on in between the more extreme uh, people and the, the wider movement. Now that it seems like QAnon is perhaps not falling apart as a movement, it's way too early to say that, um, but undergoing something of a crisis, I think it's very important that, I, I think it's, it's entirely possible that we will see an extremification process happening where more and more bizarre forms of conspiracy are generated in order to keep people's interest and in order to keep people's hope alive in the context of what is very obviously a transparently um, a Trump defeat and therefore a defeat also for QAnon as a kind of movement of, of, of hope for people. Just on this question of, of hope and its failure, um, anyone who's gone on the Donald.win, which is the place where um, a lot of these things were kind of organized very publicly. We should talk about that publicity, that kind of publicness rather. Um, anyone who's gone on the Donald.win will notice that they're in the sidebar of all of the forum pages is a link um, very prominent to the National Suicide Prevention Helpline, um, which I thought was going to be a meme. I thought it was just like uh, absurd that it's that it's in the, the sidebar. But when I clicked on it, I found out that it actually does link to the real um, American National Suicide Prevention Helpline. And so th- this kind of fallout for people in the movement, this kind of um, sense that as the QAnon reality collapses around them, they will be undergoing you know, enormous psychic shocks right? as they're kind of pulled suddenly out of uh, QAnon as, as a kind of a, a way of interpreting the failures of uh, you know, life in uh, kind of increasingly neoliberalized America. Um, there, there'll be real kind of 
quite extreme psychological consequences for people, both individually, but also in the way they might take out in various kinds of terroristic forms. So I think we are unlikely to see the demise of QAnon, but I think we're likely to see an extremification, a weirding, a further weirding of QAnon, and also a form of um, perhaps turning towards more direct, deadly forms of violence. This kind of stuff was happening already. Um, the, ever since basically Charlottesville and like kind of the blunting of that particular peak of the alt-right, we've had, we've seen like a more of a, like an open advocacy on these kind of forums and message boards to, you know, find your comrades in the, in, in real life and start preparing, start training. This is like a, like a, a, a quite a, like kind of a, a tactical current within, within this sphere. And so this is likely just going to, you know, further that along the process. And this is, something that I think we need to keep in mind is thinking about the movement in a longer term, like what's going to come in this Biden, whatever comes after era, it's probably a lot more um, activism that's more geared towards blowing stuff up and shooting people and very like spectacular violence, things like this. We've, we've already seen this kind of start to creep along in the 2010s. And I think Trump's defeat will herald more of it. Um, this is something we're going to have to start thinking about quite quite carefully, I feel. Yeah, it's also possible that Trump will form a kind of secondary government, right, or kind of a, a, just another government um, from Mar-a-Lago or something like that, where he retreats to. Um, he'll find some sort of social media platform, probably not Twitter anymore because he's been suspended, um, but some other kind of platform, right, where he will be able to tweet to or kind of communicate with his followers and act as a sort of secondary president who people can choose to go along with um this kind of superstructural fragmentation right as people follow um people kind of increasingly exist in like different distinct life worlds might very well become a quite material difference as um uh different forms of of legality or different forms of law are practiced by um very red-pilled um sheriffs right uh, who insist that biden is not the president and that the law that is being made in washington and um, which they are duty-bound to carry out is is not really the law, uh, and that the law is actually um, coming from emanating from from Trump himself or something like this, right? And I think it's like entirely possible that other forms of conspiratorialism, um, forms of like free free so sovereign citizen movements, uh, might also take place as Trump kind of sets up um, a kind of secondary uh, presidency somewhere else uh, as a kind of media presidency or something like that. Um, so just to get back to our timeline. You did talk about uh, Trump getting permanently banned from Twitter. That has happened, and he's also been taken off Facebook, at least until the transition period over with Facebook instead. And he has tried to avoid the, the, the Twitter ban by using his um, campaign account, which then got banned, and his presidential account, which then got limited, and his tweets removed from that as well. So, they, you know, the way these social media companies work is that um, once the decision's been made, any kind of ban evasion or alternate use is immediately, it all comes under the same decision. Um, but Twitter didn't ban him straight away while the riot was going on. They let him, they let him concede <laughs> the election, um, or at least as much as he was willing to do before he was taken down. And so the Twitter banned him after he, he so okay, so Trump released a video um, whilst these riots were still going on, where he like told people to go home, but also validated their anger and said it was legitimate, the election was stolen, we went through his whole Trump thing. And that got kind of limited 
Um, some tweets were removed. He was suspended for 12 hours until he removed some tweets. And then the next day he tweeted some more things, which in, on the grand scale of everything he's tweeted were more or less innocuous. He said things were only the beginning. He said he would respect the uh, transition of power. He released another video, which is probably the, the, the source of a lot of the suicidal stuff is that, you know, he recognized that Biden, a new administration would come in. Um, but he but said he wouldn't be attending the inaugur inauguration. And this is what these two, the last two kind of quite innocuous tweets were the ones that got him permanently suspended, um, which happened the day after, I think Thursday or Friday it happened. Um, and it, it's important to keep in mind a few things here, like Twitter was, Twitter's only doing this because he's no longer be, going to be the president in two weeks. If he had won the election and, and this thing was happening or he was saying these crazy stuff, then, you know, he would still be there. Um, and Twitter can, is only doing this now because he's now going to be soon out of power. It's also doing it because they've kind of, you know, people have been like celebrating this. This is not really a victory. Um, you know, he's done a lot of damage. <laughs> this is like the, the damage has been stopped being done now. Um, and even then, it's what effect it has in the long run on these kind of wider far right movements is very unclear. Like um, Trump has always been a bit disconnected from all this stuff anyway. And it, it, his his removal of his voice from his biggest platform does not mean the end of any of this in any way. Um, so, you know, Twitter doesn't get any credit because, you know, they've made a lot of money off his, off his, off advertising to his supporters. Um, but this does seem to be like a, there seems to have been like, this was a, this was a step too far um, for a lot of like the media establishment, um, for the you know, big tech, for a lot of people in the conservative establishment, this is too far now. And I mean, it, it took to the end, it took to like two weeks before he was going to leave anyway to, to let that happen, but there we go. Yeah, one of the kind of the legal changes that might push through now, I don't know if it could be pushed through so rapidly, almost certainly not, but there's a piece of legislation in America called Section 230, which basically covers the responsibilities of social media companies. So um, unlike normal publishers, they are not treated as having um, a responsibility for everything that they publish. So for example, if the New York Times publishes something and it's slanderous or libelous, um, then they could be sued for doing that, not just the author, but the actual publication itself. Whereas this, this is obviously not a viable strategy for people on Twitter and Facebook and so on and so on, right? Because there's just so much content, there's no possibility of the platform being sued. And so they have this protection, which is called Section 230. Um, it's possible that this will be, um, that Trump will now try in, in the few remaining days he has as president to remove this protection from social media companies. There's been kind of rumblings about this happening at various different times. He definitely uh, tweeted something from his POTUS account with this kind of suggestion uh, that this is what he was he was trying to do. What this will mean is not that the social media companies are um, uh, kind of shut down. It'll simply mean that they are unable to do any form of moderation, right? So the argument is that because they have moderation policies, therefore they act as publishers. And so if you say, okay, well, you can, we'll remove section 230, therefore you will have a moderation policy, um, therefore you can't have a moderation policy. Um, and if you do have a moderation policy, then we'll treat you like a publisher and we'll make you responsible for everything on your platform. And so if they, and obviously it's not feasible 
them to be responsible for everything on the platform. So they'll simply have to abandon any moderation policy. So Twitter and Facebook and blah, 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 all these different companies would essentially have their protection removed and they would just have to let go of their moderation policy, which would mean that all the various forms of deplatforming that have happened over the last you know, few years, Alex Jones going, uh, Donald Trump himself going, various kinds of other people on the far right um, and extreme right being kicked off these platforms. Almost all of those would probably be reversed very quickly. Yeah, I mean, he, the likelihood of him actually doing it is very slim because I believe that's a provision that has to be passed through Congress, which is not particularly uh, amenable to, to Trump now. He may try some like wild executive order to do it, but I believe it does have to go through Congress. In fact, I think Mitch McConnell uh, used the Section 230 um, repeal in order to kill off the $2,000 checks that America's dreadful uh, welfare state has like refused to cough up to its to, to its citizens. So th- th- I think that likelihood is is slim, but he may try it. Which I mean, who knows? Like. Um, I think I think what you're, what you're saying about this tension between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump though is really interesting, and I think that there was a I think maybe it was Zizek or maybe it was Mike Davis, <laughs> two very different figures who somehow have managed to conflate it in my head. Um, it was a suggestion basically that there will be a four way split in America. So there'll be a kind of Democratic Socialist um, Democrat wing, and then there'll be the kind of the neoliberal Democrat wing, and then there'll be this kind of essentially by European standards far right, but by American standards just maybe right wing. Um, Republican Party, sorry. And then there'll be this kind of neo-fascist wing of the party um, that will be kind of dominated by by Trump. This kind of splitting of both main parties. I think that's a really interesting possibility, in part because there was a temporary suspension, basically, of suspicion of the Republican Party amongst the far-right movements. So as I said before, they had this kind of notion of um, the new world order and so on, which has been very current, and that's changed under QAnon. Um, so the, 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 this, the, they've had this in past, this notion of the new world order, as uh, a famous kind of George H.W. Bush slip of the tongue, basically, where he uh, seemingly admits to kind of massive conspiratorial world view. Um, and ever since then, that has been the main... uh alex is um trying to silence me on this issue as uh you know (laughs) as loyal deep state members of course i can say no more um but the okay so yeah yeah so i I, this is quite an interesting thing and and one of the things we've seen on donald dot win which is i think we've we've said a bunch of times we should say what it is so the donald dot win is is the replacement for the the donald subreddit uh which was obviously a a part of Reddit, um, and then it was banned from Reddit and replaced by this this kind of um, Reddit-like uh, website. Uh, but it's become a kind of uh, a meeting ground for everyone who, on the far right, who is still in any way pro-Trump or interested in Trump, which, as I said before, is not the whole of the far right. Um, but it is a substantial portion of them, um, including people who uh, we thought, um, or it seemed, at least by their own admission, had kind of left the far right. So um, people like Matthew Heinbeck, Heinbach. Um, who people with a kind of longer memory uh, might <laughs> remember as one of the more terrifying uh, people from the um, kind of rise of the alt right uh, back in 2016. So th- this this possibility of a four way distinction has, I think, been hardened in the last few days, as uh, various people who were seen as uh, allied with Trump have uh, turned against it. Mitch McConnell, um, Mike Pence, most improminently, who refused to. Uh, entertain the idea that he would simply uh, deny the election results. Of course, he doesn't have the constitutional power to do that either anyway, so he couldn't have, but um, he was expected to 
to do that to kind of uh, act as Trump's kind of second in command. Um, he has refused to do that, and therefore, I think that makes this split between in the Republican Party more likely. But I think for the time being, um, the Democrats will be seen as the globalizing, new world order, terrifying kind of neoliberal pedophile party. Um, in part because of their absolute refusal to take seriously the idea that uh, the state should in any way care for its populace, um, with as this two thousand this two thousand um, dollar check thing, as you mentioned. Um, so I think that the, the Democrats probably remain the main enemy. Um, it'd be very interesting to see what happens with the Democratic Socialist um, wing of the Democrat Party in relation to this far right group, because there have been attempts by people like the National Justice Party, who we might come on to talk about in a separate episode, to appeal very directly for this kind of third positionist stance, appeal very directly to members of the, of, of the left and the far left in, in America in particular, saying, you know, you've, you've, been in, you've been in bed really with like, you know, appalling neoliberals, um, which is true. Uh, and that therefore you should join the real resistance, which is Nazism, uh, National Socialism, and so on. Um, so I think that there are kind of emerging uh, dynamics there that will be interesting to watch for the future. But the Democrats, I think, will remain the the terrifying party of uh, the New World Order, in part because that is what they actually are. I'm really... Well, okay, big claim. Um, it's not a big claim, it's because it's true, but it's definitely a spicy, spicy take, I would say. Um, I, I think the, this fracturing is definitely happening in the right, and we need to be really thinking about it, because oftentimes we think of the right, even the far... You know, we think of the far right, even the right, as like some homogenous thing and it's really not there within the far right itself there are obviously currents and people turning to like real life out organizing preparing for some kind of militarized insurrection there are also like dedicated trumpers who are trump till they die very you know in with the president they will download whatever app he creates whenever he creates it this kind of thing and i think that's like a very significant portion of the far right on the right and of the Republican Party, and this is where they, they have a problem. Like, it was fairly startling for me to see um, US Senator Lindsey Graham, who was like, since he was like, cut, cut, um, warning about Trump in 2016, is now kind of fully on the, tr became fully on the Trump trend. There's kind of video of him in an airport being, um, you know, lambasted and harassed by um, Trump supporters for being a traitor, for you know, not voting for the objections or whatever. And this is kind of emblematic of of, of where things are going. We're having going to see a, a lot of fracturing. And, and and this will be used by Democrats, certain like the neoliberal Democrats, uh, uh, to try and like um, rein in the democratic socialist left, rein in the left. We need to be united in the face of this fracturing. We've got, we're so close to getting this stuff. Let's all do what we think. Um, and the left in America, you know, shouldn't obviously shouldn't be letting that happen. Now the Democrats, Democratic Party are in power. They need to start, like, it's not for us on the, like, you know, libertarian left to be, uh, you know, saying what the this party should do. But if they want to stay in power, they should need to start delivering things to the American people who voted for them because they're now in charge, basically. And so... Um, the last thing that needs to be doing is some kind of neoliberal management of crisis, um, which is likely where they're going to go. There needs to be some very serious interventions um, in order to blunt this new uh, movement. But we'll, we'll probably get onto that a little bit later. Um, 
So if we maybe could turn now to kind of how like the establishment has been dealing with this incident. Um, I just want to say something about that, um, that idea of the Democrats um, needing to turn towards uh, caring for the populace and so on. That's absolutely true. Of course, that is what the, what the function of the state should be and no more. Um, the, I think it's unlikely to happen. And one of the kind of stranger parts of um, maybe the last kind of four years in fantasy land, right? Um, I mean the fantasy land both on the kind of the liberal left and also fantasy land on the far right is the disagreement, which seems strangely, uh, yeah, the, the, the disagreement between like what the main um, great power enemy is. So for American liberals, of course, it's Russia. And Russia are seen as this kind of noise in an otherwise um, effective form of um um, governance, right? Um, the Russian uh, bot farm, blah blah, is 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 taking down uh, American institutions, which were otherwise functioning perfectly. Um, and so Russia is the degradation, is the um, thing that dissolves or uh, undermines democracy. The far right view is much more concerned with China, and in some sense, they're exactly right. Like um, the far right uh, is more accurate in this sense. China is a much bigger threat. Uh, through the 21st century than Russia will be. Russia is like a, a great power, but it is in decline, um, very much in decline and has been for a very long time, whereas China is a genuine serious peer competitor to the America, uh, to America, and, or, or at least will be in kind of five years. Um, the coronavirus crisis, of course, will exacerbate that, that, that tendency. Um, and so this is kind of disagreement about whether or not the Russians and the China, or the Chinese are really kind of the great enemy. Um, which is interesting at the level of superstructural politics, but I think also it, it shows the, the, the fact that the far right in this are somehow more realistic than their Democrat establishment um, enemies uh, is partially because it's partially also the reason why it will not be possible for the Democrats to give anything to the American populace. Um, that form of great power competition will not just take the form of military conflicts in the South China Sea or increasingly across the Pacific or in various kinds of um, uh, satellite states of the two countries, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, and so on. But we'll also take the form of, um, I think, a very hard neoliberalizing um, line from the Democrats to deregulate even further American protections on work, um, to uh, smash the American working class even more um, in order to make it profitable again as a kind of um, uh, a China uh, in terms of its, its workforce participation as well. I think that's, that's a very pessimistic reading of what might happen. But I think that the contradiction between the democratic socialists of America, um, or not particularly that party, but like that, that wing of American politics and the neoliberal um, uh, democratic establishment can only really increase in the face of this um, great power competition, which somehow the far right have grasped um, totally ineptly, but more than the Democrat. Um, I'm saying all this about China, um, in part just to affirm that uh, antagonism and agonism are not going to disappear from the American political scene anytime soon. In fact, we may look back, um, as I think people did on, say, the Obama era, on the Biden era, as merely papering over some really deep contradictions which, which now, instead of being a two-way fight between American liberals and conservatives, will that be a four-way fight um, between a socialist left, uh, the liberal um, centre, uh, a right, a conservative right, and a far right? I think it's also important to maybe 
go back a little bit, talking about the origins of this, of today, of the um, of Wednesday, of the riot, um, is how long it's been in the making. This is not like something that it's not. We we talked about the, you know, the the so-called rigging of the 2016 election and how this has been a thing a, a thing that happened before. Um, but we have to keep in mind that this kind of stoking of like conspiracy, stoking of like racist conspiracy, has been part of conservative Republican politics for a long time. And um, we can go back to you know however far you want the Southern strategy in the in the sixties and seventies. Talk about um, Reagan's kind of welfare queen rhetoric. We can talk about the Willie Horton ad. We can talk about the birtherism. Sarah Palin, um, all these things have contributed towards a, like an increasingly like extra movement to the conservative movement, which is conspiratorial, fundamentally racist, things like this. And this is just the kind of another expression of that decades long process in many ways. Um, so we, we, we should say that. Yes. And that process is not one of simple media fragmentation, right? The, the, the the important thing there is not social media. The important thing there is uh, becoming a part of the um, American experiment. Let's talk about what, how this stuff um, affects uh, politics close to home, uh, namely in the UK. What happens in America tends to happen then a bit later in the UK. Um, how do you see the various kind of like people on the far right now? So there was, of course, the, uh, the QAnon bunch in the UK. There's also Patriotic Alternative. There's also a bunch of other kind of far right organizations in, operating in the UK at the moment. How do you think they're going to respond to this uh, happening in America? Well, I mean, in many ways, what happens in America kind of echoes back here and echoes across the world. And that's the kind of result of America still being, however decayed it is, it still is the imperial uh, center of the world um so we we saw like you know lot we saw lockdown protests in the us and we saw them in here uh, i think this is this situation is a very particular context in many ways like it is about a particular election particular movement set in america but we can continue to see in the uk the similar anti-lockdown protests similar conspiracy protests have become like their own independent thing. And we've criticized um, some on the anti-fascist or on the left fear-mongering about these conspiracy protests and, you know, taking example, cherry-picking particular people at these protests and saying it's, um, you know, saying it's kind of indicative of a wider, of a wider movement. But we do need to be careful about this stuff. And we're not saying that, you know, these conspiracy movements are not like, uh, a safe from fascist influence of being from co-option. Um, you know, Patriarch Alternative, who we'll have a, an episode coming up on, um, have indulged in, you know, anti-COVID conspiracy, anti-lockdown politics, uh, in part, I think, to appeal to this kind of independent movement that's grown up. And wh whether they're successful or not is, is, is yet to be seen. They haven't really gotten that much attention through this particular set of their politics but still it's there and they, there is a lot of people who go to these anti-lockdown protests and they're um you know they already believe in some very unreasonable things so it's perfectly logical for them to start believing in other unreasonable things as it tends to go with with kind of conspiracies like one conspiracy begets another one begets another one um 
we've also seen in the UK, and perhaps this is more a reflection rather than a causal link, um, you know, an increase in kind of, um, in, within the far right of this kind of return to the land, return to ourselves, prepare for some kind of insurrection type of rhetoric, which is like a, a, a contradiction and antagonism within the, the milieu around patriarchal alternative. People think the electoral route is not there, um, and the far right should start building up their own kind of white solidarity, white enclaves, white communes. We had Nick Hill and his, um, uh, who is a who is the leader, London leader, of practical alternative, setting up a, like a whites only enclave in his house. This kind of stuff may become more prevalent, and in some ways, um, this is then becoming less active, less politically active as they retreat from political life. But in other ways, it's very dangerous because you kind of kind of start having these like kind of under communities of white nationalists that are out of the eye of anti-fascists, out of the eye of the media of investigators and therefore free to to grow their project now they will not be able to do that without with uh, completely invisibly or without any kind of um without any kind of um uh you know sorry they will be able to do that completely invisibly of course but it, it changes the game and we, we will speak about this in the practical alternative episode but you know the the, the way the Far right is operating in the UK has, has changed from when it was the EDL, the FLA, Tommy Robert, free Tommy marches. There's no pub, really. There's not a lot of public marches to be opposing, and that was true before the lockdowns. Um, and so we need to start rethinking how we um, in kind of investigate these groups, how we research these groups, how we oppose them because they're changing. And if we stick to like black block tactics or whatever kind of buzzword you want to throw around. Um, street confrontation, whatever, it's not going to work because they're not doing street demonstrations. Um, so this is something we need to keep keep in mind for the UK. Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about about all this? Well, I think one of the things to note about the patriotic alternative, patriotic alternative response to the COVID lockdown is that how in favour that they were in March. Um, there were lots of um, complaining on the uh, on Mark Collette's um show uh which gets put on bit shoot every now and again uh, about how late the uk had locked down and how insufficient it was and how this was a real tragedy because who was going to die of this well of course it's going to be old white people um and so the kind of the, the the fury that happened around that i think is um uh shows really how supple i, I say that's uh, perhaps excessively complimentary um how opportunistic and um chaotic uh the patriotic alternatives policies really are given that they've now switched this kind of conspiratorialism um it's not real it's fake blah blah so yeah i mean that's that's in part because it, it kind of revolves around one very patrick the group the party involved revolves around one very particular individual in mark collette who's got his a deeply weird history in the far right and he's like <laughs> he's a very particular figure so let's say that you know he's he's got a history and the group he controls is very much within his control it's not like a grassroots it's not, it's not a membership organization there's two public members which is him and his deputy and there's not really any kind of popular input into this thing it's not a vehicle for like a, a group it's a vehicle for him and he kind of milks it with his super chats and his whatever um and so that that's the other thing to keep in mind. Like a, a political party would have would be speaking from an ideology 
that would dictate, you know, their attitude to lockdown. So we see you know, a lot of libertarian Tories uh, being very hostile to lockdowns, and they're obviously they're wrong about that, but they that, that's the, them an expression of their economic ideology ultimately, and their state their ideology or the state is. Whereas with Colette, his ideology, everything's up for negotiation, apart from like a few very key things, which is you know white people are better than all other races, and we need a new you know like we need to a new persecution against non-white people. Um, those are ultimately the kind of non-negotiables, and everything else is up, up for grabs. To be, to be honest. So what? So let's imagine that um, Trump does become a kind of um, secondary president or kind of a parallel president. Um, what relationship do we expect him to have to this wider movement? I mean, I, this secondary president thing is not. I don't think it's particularly viable, in part because it relies on him having access to his people, and. You know, he doesn't have Twitter, which is a big, big blow. It is a really big blow to him. For someone who's, you know, so wrapped up in Twitter, it, he, it's really, it must be hard for him right now. Um, but, um, sorry, I just amused myself. Um, and, the, and the thing is, the, the, the tech companies are not just content with taking him off platforms. But, you know, we've also seen that Google has taken Parler off, the, off their kind of Play Store. We may say Apple do the similar thing. Um, if Trump creates his own app, if he goes on Parler, well, suddenly it's not on, it's not supported on the Play Store anymore. Like if he creates his own app, there's no guarantee you'll get on Apple, there's no guarantee you'll get on the Play Store, on Google Play Store. Like this is like, you know, this is a real difficulty for him. Like how do you reach, like some of the kind of griping about big tech is true. Like how do you reach people if you can't, that they've got no way of reaching them? Like you can set up your own website, but that's, you know, there's a whole layer of like complications that people have to get to to get to your content. And if there's even one layer of communication, uh, if, there's, if there's even one layer of contradiction, you'll shear off a whole bunch of potential users. So really he's only going to be speaking to like a, a core, a, a very dedicated core of people. And then that'll be like maybe a million, but compared to his base now, that's not a lot of talk. Now, whether that actually matters, whether Trump actually matters as a figurehead at all, is very much up for debate. There's like a lot of celebration by kind of liberal media and things like Trump's gone now, this is great, we can go to bed, we can go, go to brunch, this kind of thing. And this is not like, this is like, the Trump being removed from Twitter is a big thing. He's a, he's a currently serving president of the United States. So it's fairly like unprecedented. Well, it is unprecedented. It's, it's a quite incredible step for Twitter to take, considering all the very legitimate kind of concerns about, you know, public discourse and the public square. And he is the representative of, you know, all these people, ultimately, however, like, whatever he is, this is like a kind of a, a breach of, of, of convention of, of, you know, yeah, precedent and stuff. But, you know, QAnon, from its start, QAnon didn't necessarily need Trump the person. They needed the, the Q Trump. And these are two different figures. Like a lot of the, even going back to the original Q drops, it was about a reading of a reading of events, a reading of um, things that were happening in real life to kind of twist them into some kind of Q narrative of, you know, uh, uh, Trump working with Mueller to out the paedophile Democrats and the storm was coming. And a lot of this, a lot of the, the original Q drops were, you know, 
this whole idea of the storm, which is like a big thing in, in cute circles, was came from some random comment that Trump made at a photo op where he just kind of, like his meat brain kind of blurted out, the storm is coming. And it was like, well, what? Like, but this was like kind of incorporated very quickly into the fabric of the of the Q tale, as it were. And so this disconnect has always been there in Q, from Trump himself and the and the the, the Q Trump and the Q movement. And it will take much for the, the the link to be completely broken for a for you know a, a Trump to not matter at all. And these people are kind of already there, like. You just look at the cute, the, the the Trump speech, the, the speech Trump gave before people stormed the Capitol. It was, you know, very typical, very rambly, very imprecise speech. It wasn't a, it wasn't a speech of very, you know, like a very authoritative speech of like a, a fascist leader. It was a, you know, rambling New York Trump speech, you know. And these people took that and they took the tra- weird trial bar comfort thing and they went and invaded the Capitol and did all the stuff they did and, there were bombs found, and this is a movement that's independent, has becoming independent of the, of Trump himself in many ways. And this is something we need to consider: is that, um, you know, when you think about how a movement grows and develops, oftentimes it's there's, there's an event, and then the that event kind of reverberates through a long time afterwards. And the the key example from a, like a purely looking at it from a movement perspective, not not a political perspective, is the um, the 2010 student protests in the UK. Um, now, those protests, disturbances, unrest, whatever, took place in a very short period of time. It was like a 10-week t- period of a 12-week period of an academic term. And by the end, by the new term in January, it, it basically all fizzled. Well, once the um, the fees had uh, had been raised and, you know, all the our nightmare decade was about to, you know, go into, go into effect. Um, uh, but the a bunch of people were radicalised in those protests, and a bunch of people um, went on from those protests and set off set up various institutions, various kind of movements were started that came from um, came from that initial very brief period of unrest. Um, and what we, what we saw was um, there's a real you know very strong argument you can make that. Kind of the popular movement that went initially kind of got behind Corbyn, Corbynism and his bid for leadership initially in 2015, sprung from those 2010 um, disturbances and the people who and the people and the and the kind of political careers that came from that. And so this is, I feel, is another example of that, and in a much more depressing way. You know, I think we're going to see this be a kind of a, a an ongoing an ongoing kind of um, issue in American politics and even global politics for a very long time, um, simply because people have been radicalized in, the, in this event, people have been radicalized. And, um, you know, this, I, this kind of fantasy notion that Trump's gone, so his movement will die with him is something that really needs to be like dismissed out of hand almost. Like a movement that was built over years is going to take years to dismantle, if it is even dismantled. It'll take years to uh, to um to go away. The the, the people that follow him, the, the Trumpers, are going to be relatively small, but compare in comparison to the the giant uh, the, the 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 existing far right, which is quite fairly big. You know that's the the thing I was talking about with the movement thing. Like the people the people in the 2010 student protest did not continue being student anarchists. They went on to be 
left laborites or they went on to be communists or whatever they, they developed politically and the people uh there'll be what, what i mean by that is there'll be a there'll be a hardcore of trump fans you know trump fans who really like trump and give their life for the president and there'll be another far right which is independent of trump yeah, I think that, that, that's entirely true. My main prediction for 2021 is that um, a sizable portion of the Q world decides that Biden is Trump. That's my that's my prediction. Um, well, I thought we'd already got the spicy takes out of the way, but um, Biden as a new new Trump is a big so part of the kind of the um, broadening out of QAnon has been its like attachment to. Um, evangelical Christianity in its various forms and kind of various forms of spiritualism as well. There's a really great podcast about it actually called Conspirituality, which I really recommend. Um, it's broadening out of like a frame from just like being about fire politics to being actually about um, the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? This is not an insignificant part of the Q movement. And one of the things that, of course, this allows you to do is claim that, it, oh, it's not just really Trump. Trump is merely the kind of the prophet. What we're actually waiting for is like the second coming of Jesus Christ, who could be anyone, right? So, um, the, the possibility of slipping from Trump as the prophet, um, sorry, possibility of slipping from Trump as the kind of the revealed um, truth of the world to Trump as merely the prophet for the revealed truth of the world, which is displaced onto someone else. It's quite real. I'm being facetious when I say that it's going to be Biden, but like, it's not impossible that it would be someone else. Um, or that we would even get a kind of succession of people who were understood as um, mere prophets for uh, someone yet to come and so on. I think we're really looking at the emergence of a... Um, a religion in a, in a fairly substantial way. Great. I think we should wrap it up there. Um, that was a, that was a lot. Um, thank you very much for listening, sticking with us. Uh, of course, this is, these events are moving fast still. Um, obviously the interpretation of them is moving fast. We'll be back with, um, much more, hopefully when, uh, further things are taking place. Although, you know, as ever, as a kind of good liberal centrist, I want no events to ever happen. Uh, so Alex has a final point to make and then we will uh, see you soon. We should point out that there are some, I can't remember exactly who's done it right now off the top of my head, but there's been uh, some of our um, fellow shows on the Channel Zero network have, have recorded a roundtable discussion about the uh, what happened on Wednesday, um, which should be either, I don't know when it's coming out exactly, but look out for it, we'll promote it on our social media as well. Um, obviously we are uh, very much not American, and so our takes should be considered in that light, although I think they're good takes. That's why we're doing the episode. Um, but you should also, if you want to get an American uh, take on what's going down, um, then you should definitely check out them. Great. Thanks for listening. And we will see you very soon. Bye. Bye. I'm Kami. And I'm Franz. And together we are co-hosts of the Doomer versus Bloomer podcast on the Channel Zero Network. Every week I'm going to complain about how the world is fucked, things are definitely going to get worse before they get better, and we're all probably going to die. And I disagree with Kami and think that having hope is important. We can th make things better, but only if we believe we can and put in all the effort we're able to into organizing against capitalism in the state. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> That's the core of our podcast, y'all. It's our shtick. We disagree. <laughs> Uh, find our show on SoundCloud or whenever, wherever you find podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Doomer v. Bloomer.
Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, you can support the podcast by donating on Patreon and you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. It really does help us grow the project and all the support we get means a lot to us. So that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what? Thank you and I'll see you soon. 12 rules for what? Yeah,